a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Joshua chapter 20. We're going to be covering verse, uh, excuse me, chapters 20 and 21 this morning. Even if we don't read every verse, our focus will be on the first six verses of Joshua chapter 20. But we are far into our series by which we are going through the entire book together. And so over the course of this book, we've seen Israel come out of the wandering years in the wilderness to miraculously cover, uh, excuse me, cross the Jordan River and to begin to actually take conquest over the land that God had promised to give to them. God called them in Joshua 1 to be strong and courageous because that is actually what they needed to do to physically take the land. When God promised in Joshua chapter 1 that no one would be able to stand before the Israelites, what he means is, is they were going to try. And since they were going to try, it was going to require faith on the part of Israel to continue to move and conquest over all of the land. But his promise was sure. Even if people tried, they wouldn't be able to actually stand in front of the Israelites and they would be able to take the land because God was faithful to his promises. When Israel trusted God and obeyed his mandate to take the land, no one could stand in front of them. And it was only when Israel refused to move in faith, it was only when they lived by fear or misplaced trust that they actually couldn't take land. Because there's this amazing reality that we see in the book of Joshua. There's this synergy between faith and the promises of God where in order to take hold of his promises, you've got to have the faith that it takes to actually move. And you've got to move forward and you've got to keep moving forward because you believe that God's promises will become a reality. And ultimately we know that Israel would fail and from the book of Judges onward they would struggle in disobedience and the nation would struggle in unfaithfulness. The vision for Israel was that they would live as the people of God and set up a society that reflected the righteousness of God to the world around them. And so this week we see kind of a transition in the text because God did not just give his people the promised land so that they could set up whatever society it was that they saw fit. Because God has a vision for what a righteous society looks like. And the people of God were called by him to set up that type of society in the promised land. And what we're going to see over these two chapters is that God actually casts a vision for the righteous society that he had in mind. A society that was set up with righteous laws and even systems designed by God to enforce and ensure that justice was done in a society that did have sinful people and even experienced the consequences of the curse of sin all around them. The fact is that God's word tells us how to live as a people, both redeemed by the grace of God, but also good for our neighbors and good for the world around us, even in dealing with the most heinous of sin and its consequences. As so I want to begin reading in Joshua chapter 20, I'm only going to read the first three verses to begin. It says, then the Lord said to Joshua, if you ever want an easy memory verse, verse one. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. 
And so what may seem, if you're actually reading through these verses in your quiet time or in your devotions, this may seem like a monotone narrative of just kind of meeting out some rules from God's law. And you may even struggle and say, these seem totally unapplicable. These seem like irrelevant verses in the life that I'm actually living. What you're actually seeing in this narrative is the justice of God and the righteousness of God in the society of God. And so you see three things that are of vital importance to our purpose this morning. First, you see what is kind of mentioned in aside, and that is the city of refuge. And then you're going to see the manslayer. And then you're going to see what the title that I've been trying to get the church to give me for years, because I think it's so cool, the avenger of blood. I just feel like that describes my personality so well, but yet it keeps getting voted down over and over. I don't get it. But we see these three distinctions that, that we struggle to kind of say, and we don't really know what they are because they're actually reminders to Joshua of a law that God gave Moses. And God, as it says, is reminding Joshua of a law that was supposed to take place once they began to set up society. Thus, we see the transition. And so my hope today is to kind of talk to you about what it was that God was seeking to set up in Israel in the promised land and how we are to apply that concept, that philosophy, that reasoning to our society today. The first thing you need to see is that God is just in the way that he judges sin. God is just in the way that he judges sin. And we start with a very important attribute of God there at the very beginning, and that is just that God is just. And so we're dealing with, as I said, a different type of narrative where Israel is called by God. And here's where it begins. They're called by him to bring order into a very disordered Canaan. The Canaanites, as we said weeks ago, were a wicked people. And all of God's vision for society and law is meant to bring order and repentance of sin within the land. And so we see this from what God reveals to Joshua in chapter 20 here, that he's begun the distribution of what's called the cities of refuge. And then from the end of chapter 20 through chapter 21, he begins to then lay out where the Levitical priesthood are meant to live and what cities they could have so that they could install what is a righteous order in the sacrificial system of Israel. But where we're focusing on in these first six verses begins with a partial application of a total concept of order that began in the book of Exodus and then on through the book of Leviticus and Numbers and even Deuteronomy that are now coming into play. So God, understand this, did not give his law to be disconnected from the society that existed outside of the religious order. And that challenges the way that many of us view how to apply the law of God in our lives and even in the society around us. And so many of us will live as though there are two compartments. There's the holiness of God, and I live that in my spiritual life. That's for discipleship. That's for the church. That's for me and my quiet time and my prayer and devotion to the Lord. And then in another compartment is the way that you view society around you. And that compartment can be defined very easily by the word secular. And we live as though there are two distinct realities. There's the sacred and then there's the secular. But what we see throughout the Old Testament is that is not the vision that God has for the world. God has a vision for the world that it's all his. Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior is a very famous way that Christians describe themselves. And while that is true, he's not only my personal Lord and Savior. He's the Lord of all. 
On the day that I came to faith in Christ and I said, Lord, please come in, be my personal Lord and Savior. That wasn't me giving permission. That was me admitting reality. That was me saying a factual statement. I didn't say, Lord, you are my Lord, and then magically he became Lord. No, he's Lord whether I admit it or not. Everyone in your life can deny the Lordship of Christ. That does nothing to disqualify it. That does nothing to negate the reality that he is Lord of all, whether we want to admit it or not. As the fact of the matter is, there are not sacred and secular, there's just gods. The great theologian once said, there's no square inch of the entire universe that God does not look at and proclaim mine. He's the king of everything. He is the Lord of all. Absolutely everything belongs to God. And through his law in the Old Testament, what he's doing is he's giving us a revelation of what his righteousness looks like both in soul. That's that personal part. Yes, he is personal in the way that he exists, but also in society at large. God defines, demands, and promises that everything belongs to him. And ultimately what we're going to see through the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is coming a day where his authority will be felt over all of the world. And so understand that the authority of God and this order that he is setting up is not just for the benefit of what he wants to be sacred for himself. No, it's for the benefit of everything to be sacred according to his law. And so the law is a picture of his holiness applied to a sinful world that was never designed by God to exist with a separation of that which is holy and that which is not holy that he doesn't exert his lordship over. It is all his and his people were meant to live seeking to apply his righteousness in every sphere. And so if you look backward, if you want to know what this means, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, Moses writes a song. And starting in verse 4, here's how part of it goes. He says, the rock, God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. And so pause right there. He says, it tells us four attributes of God. Moses notes that he is a just God. He is a perfect God, he is a faithful God, and he is an upright God. If you add all those up, you know what they amount to? Righteousness. God is righteousness. But note what he says about sinners. In verse 5, he says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And so what is the opposite of righteousness? Man who would destroy everything with sinfulness. Moses writes, they are corrupt, they are blemished, they are crooked, twisted. Add them all up, what do you get? Unrighteousness. And so what is it that you need to be redeemed from? Because I know nobody wants anybody to look at them and say, hey, you're twisted. I mean, some of you do, but that's because you're a weirdo. <laughs> nobody wants anybody to look at them and say, hey, you're corrupt, you're blemished, you're crooked. Nobody wants to admit their unrighteousness, but that's what we are in sin. And we actually need God to redeem us from those things. We need his righteousness. And when you gravitate or when you just willfully rebel against those things, which all of us have, what do you get? You get depravity and you get it in soul. But here's the thing. Your depravity has consequences that affects everything around you. Therefore, there is no sin that is relegated only to the personal. 
Sin has an effect on society around you. Therefore, the righteousness of God also has ramifications for society around the redeemed. As you live out your redemption, it changes the world around you. It influences the world around you. And yes, it seeks to build something that is righteous rather than only being condemned to build that which is unrighteous. And that is what God is doing through the nation of Israel. It never makes sense to look to sinful man for the answers to what will bring order to society. Yet every one of us, part of having the image of God in us, is that that's what we want. We want a just world. We want a just society. We want righteousness to reign over everything because that is what God has put in us. And if you are redeemed, even more so, that is what you want. The issue comes when you begin looking in the wrong areas for those things. There is no righteousness that can be defined apart from God. And so followers of Jesus Christ will never find a righteous society if you don't look to the just judge of what is righteous, and that is God. And so when we begin dealing with sin in society at large, it is vital for us to begin with that worldview because that is what God has revealed to us about himself. He has revealed that he is righteous and everything disconnected from him is unrighteous. And so you have to begin with that rubric, especially when you begin to define the specifics of how to deal with sin. And that is what we are dealing with here. Between verses 1 and 6, we're dealing with what we would call the most heinous of sin. And that is the murder of another person. And so it's important for us to then have the guideline that God has put in place for how to deal with that specific reality. And he's given Israel three things. He's given them, as I said, he's given them the city of refuge. He's given them the definition that a manslayer is. And so there's no hidden meaning there. Do you know what a manslayer is? Well, that's the killer. All right. And then there's the avenger of blood, and that can be described as the one who is responsible for enforcing the law through a family member of the victim they're supposed to seek justice. And this is all defined by the law of God for us. And it shows us a very important principle. All sin is wrong, but not all sin is equal. And so followers of Jesus Christ try to kind of reason with the world. And many of us try to be marketers for Jesus because we want to make him look good. And sometimes we try to make him look better than he wants to make himself. And that's when you know you're lying about him. All right. And so we will say, I think, well-intentioned things to the world around us to try to pacify them in their sin. But it teaches them the opposite of what God's word teaches. And I've heard many people do this by making a statement that I understand. I'm, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying you're wrong. OK, when you make a statement like, well, sin is sin is sin. I think you have a great intention of saying that, but that's not the way God views it. Because that's not the way that God deals with sin. And what I mean by that is, is that you have what I believe inside of you, a, a, the breath of God, the image of God, that gives you a bit of natural revelation about these issues. Would you rather me punch you in the face or stab you in the heart? If you're a smart person, you say neither. All right. <laughs> but if you got to choose one, I hope you're choosing the punch. That's what I would choose. Both of them are going to hurt, but one of them is most likely going to have a less severe consequence than the other. 
And that's why you would choose it. And so that's why I would say, well, one's probably a little worse than the other one. When you try to say sin is sin is sin, what you're actually trying to do is relieve the most heinous of sins from the stigma that God himself has intended for them to have. And so the God of the New Testament is not different in the way that he views sin from the God of the Old Testament. Here's a picture of what I mean by that. Look in 1 John chapter 1 and verses 5 and 6. It says, this is a message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so you can see between Deuteronomy 32 and 1 John 1, we have a different analogy. He proclaims just the attributes of God's justice, his uprightness, his incorruptible nature in Deuteronomy 32. But the outcome of Deuteronomy 32 and 1 John 1 are exactly the same. A completely holy and righteous God who despises sin. And so we then can reason from that, that while the metaphors between the Old Testament and the New Testament might be different, the conclusion must be the same. If you want to know what righteousness is, you have to go to God. And we see this even how God informs Joshua on how he's supposed to deal with sin. He's dealing with the issue of murder here, but he does not treat it the same as any other sin because the consequences are graver for the victim. Therefore, the punishment in a just society will match God's view of sin. And so when we make the statement, sin is sin is sin, what we're trying to do, no matter how well-intentioned we are, is to flatten sin so that people don't feel judged for heinous evil. And even the way that we would deal with it in society, true crime podcasts are very uh, popular right now. You go on Netflix, you got a documentary about every serial killer in the history of mankind, every streaming service, and you love it. I don't think anybody's saying Ted Bundy is the same as a kid that steals a Butterfinger at 7-Eleven. Nobody would say that. If you do, you're, you're, you have an inability to reason. There's something not working in your brain. The consequences on the victim is vastly different. And therefore, what God is saying in his law is the consequences for the perpetrator must be different as well. Murder in the Old Testament and in God's view in general is a heinous sin that must be dealt with. Here's why. Because we mean one of two things when we say sin is sin is sin. The first thing some of us mean is actually true. We're just saying it wrong. We're saying that all sin is wrong and justly earns you condemnation from God. This is true, but it does not lead to the conclusion that all sin is then equal. What we mean when we say number one is that all sin is against the righteousness of God and God is so holy that sin cannot be in his presence. Therefore, to break one of God's laws, no matter how insignificant you think it is, is to earn a eternal separation from God because your sin would corrupt his integrity and no one can do that. That is a true statement, but in dealing with sin in the world that doesn't equalize all sin and it certainly doesn't flatten all sin because what some people mean by sin is sin is sin is a second thing 
They mean all sin is equal, therefore don't judge anyone too harshly. You see, that statement is ridiculous, and it is a total lie. And I know that because of the way that you've responded to me comparing two different sins. I mean, if somebody gossips about me, that's going to hurt my feelings, and that's not good. That's a sin against God. But if somebody cuts my head off, well, we're dealing with a different thing altogether. If you gossip about me, guess what? I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning with one less friend. If you cut my head off, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow morning. <laughs> All right? The consequences for me are worse in one than they are in the other one. And that is why God deals with them differently when he is setting up his law. It's ridiculous and a total lie to flatten sin. Because to flatten all sin as though it is equal is a foolish concept, but here's what's bad about it. It's absolutely destructive in its application. Because then that which will have great harm on people in society and yes, to their souls is equated to smaller sins that while you still need to deal with them, they do not have the grave effect on society at large that other things has. And we can't treat God as though he is unreasonable in the way that he gives his law, as though he is unreasonable in the way that he sets up society, because the way that he sets up society is to mete out the right punishment for the right crime. Therefore, yes, all sin deserves the righteous wrath of God because it is unrighteous, but not all sin is equal, and a just God does not tell us to deal with lying about your weight the same way that he does about the intentional murder of a person. And we wouldn't like the outcome of that either, because imagine you're driving down 64 at some point, you want to go to the Blue Ridge Parkway, and a state trooper pulls you over, you're already having a bad day, just right at that statement. But then they come up to you, they're just looking at your driver's license, and they're like, 150 pounds? <laughs> Maybe in your neck. <laughs> Please step out of the car. <laughs> throw the cuffs on you, throw you in a cell, you go before the judge, death penalty. You're like, what? For lying about my weight? See, you can't, it's just, it's laughable in concept. But that's what we do when we say all sin is equal. We play this great game of pretend as though they all have the same consequences. They all deserve the same punishment. None of us would look at a report where you're like, they lied about their weight and you're going to kill them? There should be an uproar from society. This is unjust. Yet, deep down inside, even the greatest person that's against the death penalty looks at a heinous murder or two or three or four or five. And somewhere deep down inside us all, when a death penalty is laid down for a person that's clearly guilty, we look at that and we say, well, it's not unjust that they have to pay with their very lives. You see, friends, left to ourselves, we have no righteous measure of how to deal with unrighteousness in society. But God gives a just weight and measure for how to build a righteous society. Therefore, that leads us to point number two this morning. God's law is the basis for all morality. God's law is the basis of all morality. 
Here's the key. You can be moral without God. And so I'm not saying that anybody who's an atheist or anybody who's not a Christian or anybody who, who doesn't ascribe to the concept of morality, that they're just out there, they're as depraved as they could possibly be. They can't even hope to live a moral lifestyle. That's not what I'm saying. You can live a moral life without the law of God, but here's the problem. You can't ultimately explain why. And that's the problem with society today is that we have many people seeking to be moral, but at the end of the day, they have no objective anchor that they're attached to for why they are moral. Therefore, what's the outcome of that? The outcome of that then, therefore, is a person who would 10 years ago say that some specific thing is completely wicked, it will rot society, we can't allow it, it's bad, it's evil, it's wicked. And just a decade later, that same person will say, oh no, it's good, it's righteous, it's holy. The very thing that you condemned 10 years ago is now all of a sudden righteous, holy, good for society, and not just good for society, it's a right that if you deny that right, you are a bigot. How do you get there from here? I'll tell you how you get there. You don't have an objective anchor for why you believe that in the first place. So while the culture around you parroted a belief you held to it. But as soon as the sand beneath your feet shifted and the society around you decided that certain things that used to be evil and wicked are now culturally acceptable, well, you changed your entire moral compass to fit what was popular in society. And that is why it's so important to understand that that which is good for the soul from the law of God is also good for society from the law of God as well because it gives us an objective anchor to where we are not measuring what is right and wrong by that which is popular around us. We are measuring what is right and wrong by the society that God has defined. Look in verse 4. In verse 4, God, through Joshua, says, He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And so we have two things at work here. The first thing, we actually, through this, get a response to the critics of faith in Jesus Christ who would look at the Old Testament and say, were the Israelites bloodthirsty genocidal maniacs for killing the Canaanites? And the answer to that is obviously no, because bloodthirsty maniacs do not set up a society in which they actually have judgment and weights and measures for how to determine whether or not something is killing or whether or not something is murder. And Israel actually brought that order into Canaan with them because that type of order did not exist within Canaan before they were there. Because before they were there, Canaan was such a wicked nation. History of antiquity actually tells us that these were a people that would kill for all sorts of reasons that would nauseate us today, even to the point where they would kill people and sacrifice them for their pagan worship and their cultic 
worship services. And so this monotone narrative actually has great implications for the way you even view the calling of God on their lives. What God is actually instructing Joshua to do here is to enforce laws that were actually given to Moses. And this is actually a defense of the eternality of God's word. And so the law that God gave Moses in Deuteronomy and Numbers is the same law that he's giving here. He doesn't go against his revelation. Rather, the scripture is very good about this. God only ever reiterates and reminds us of his revelation. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 19, starting in verse 4, God had told Moses to make these districts called the cities of refuge when they came into the land He says in verse 4, this is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hatred, excuse me, hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. And I love that text because he actually gives an example. Is there's a big difference between chasing someone full of rage with an axe and killing them and trying to chop down a tree and your palms get too sweaty and it slips out of your hand and you're like, oh no, Cousin Ralph. (laughs) (laughs) Is there's a big difference between the two of those scenarios, all right? And he says one is intentional murder and the other is an accidental death and the motivations matter. Therefore, not everything is equal. And what we actually see here, and here's a beautiful thing about even uh, the society that we live in, this is a shadow of what we in the modern era call due process. Details matter. The facts of the situation matter. And we deal with this in our era where people want us to stop worrying about facts and only care about feelings. With all of the things that have happened in the media over the last five, six, seven years, I'm losing count how many years into this game we are, where people say, oh no, you can't ask about the details of the situation. You can't ask about the facts that led to the situation. All that matters is what actually ended from that situation. And they will tell us even to think facts don't matter. And what God is saying in Joshua 20 that's reiterated from Deuteronomy 19 is a very simple concept in the Steve International Version. I would say don't jump too quickly to conclusions. Saying so you need to study the situation. The facts do matter. Some would even say facts matter more than your feelings. And God says you need to actually use proper sober judgment so that you can figure out what happened before you too quickly start playing the blame game. And so he looks to Israel and there was that first thing where he says he's bringing order into a disordered society. And then there's a second thing where he's actually looking to his people and he's enforcing a morality with a reason. And that reason is that it comes from God himself. And so in a situation like this, you shouldn't rush to judgment. And the reason that you shouldn't rush to judgment is because God wants to stop a miscarriage of justice from happening before it happens. And so God is revealing ultimately the dignity of human life by showing the consequences of taking a human life. This is, again, a picture of the image of God in man from Genesis chapter 1. 
But jump down to Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 11, and it reveals that if you intentionally and unlawfully take a human life, it's murder. He says, but if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, attacks him, strikes him fatally so that he dies and flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. And here's a very important thing for you to realize is that God judges by a standard that is higher than what your feelings may lead you to stand by. And an important aspect of this text in verse 13 is he says, your eyes shall not pity him. We have a thread through the evangelical church now that would say, well, if you're going to be pro-life in the womb, well, it's only reasonable that you have to be pro-life to the tomb. And what they mean by that is you have to be against the death penalty, to which I, I say I'm as against the death penalty as God is, which means I'm not against it at all. I'm pro-life from womb to tomb. I just think some of them need to get there quicker. And according to God's righteous law, that's what he's setting up for society. He's saying that if you think God's righteous thoughts, because the dignity of human life is so important to God, because the image that he put inside of us to have an eternal soul that reflects him is so important in this world, the only just consequence for the taking of a human life, if it is murder, is that you forfeit the rest of your life if it's proven. God sets up just weights and measures that sometimes we're a little too uncomfortable with. And he says, your eyes shall not pity him because he's teaching you a very important discipleship principle. And that discipleship principle is the dignity of human life. And who do you think you are to take someone else's? He's saying just because somebody makes you mad in a moment, if you just explode in a fit of rage and you kill someone, you're trying to be God. And that is blasphemous. No one has given you the authority to judge such an issue. And then in the next book forward in Numbers chapter 35, starting in verse 24, it reveals that if it is proven to the elders of the city and the congregation that there is innocence or that it was some sort of accident, then the person will stay within the city of refuge so as to remove the temptation of revenge in the life of the avenger of blood. Here's what he says. He says, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with the rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. We will deal with that last point in the, or that last phrase in the final point. But note what he's setting up. He's setting up a process by which you weigh the evidence. A process by which the elders of the city with the congregation gathered make a decision as to a person's guilt or innocence. And so my question then out of that is, by what standard do you judge what is right by? By what standard do you understand right and wrong by? 
by the revelation of the God who created all that is, is the only righteous answer to that. Because you have to admit that inside of yourself, you do not just naturally always know what is righteous, what is just, how to deal with crime, how to deal with sin, what needs to happen, because your mind is at minimum corrupted by the sin that you were born into and by the grace of God, he has not left us to just be principal pluralists. Rather, God has left us with his law so that we can look at it and gauge his righteous standard by which these things must be applied in society. Friend, I know there are many non-Christians in this world that act and even hold to these very moral realities. But the issue that as a follower of Jesus, we must tell the world, they are robbing from our playbook, even if they deny it. This is the objective anchor that society must be tied to. Yes, you can act and hold to morals without God, but epistemologically speaking, you can never truly explain why. The only just reason why we must be moral is if there is a God who is there, and as Francis Schaeffer said, he is not silent. He is a God that we are all accountable to. He is a God that we must look to and be responsible to. Otherwise, our morals will shift with whatever cultural decay tends to be happening in society right now. And this is the rot in our current society. It is the opposite of God's vision. It's the only explanation that we can have as to why all of a sudden it is acceptable that a 43-year-old man named Adam can show up to an elementary school next week and say, no, I'm not actually Adam. My name is Eve, and I'm an eight-year-old girl. There's no objective reason behind that. It is the rod of society that is based on autonomous reasoning to where there is no God that you are responsible to. There is only an identity within myself to proclaim. That's what people mean when they say that's my truth. What they've actually done is disconnected every one of us from a reality outside of us. And they have said, the greatest authority in my life is the authority that is inside of me. Therefore, whatever I decide inside, you are responsible for holding up for me. And so in society, we struggle with this because, again, sin is sin is sin. And if it is all equal, I've got to deal with it all the same. And Christians, even well-intentioned Christians, will blasphemously redefine love so that other people will feel accepted. Friends, the problem with that is cultural rot does not only affect the individuals causing it. As we've seen, it has grave consequences for everyone around you. And so what God is doing in this text is he is actually setting up a system by which we can know right and wrong. A system by which we don't appeal to the authority inside of us. We appeal to the God who is there. We appeal to his righteousness that he has given us through his word. And this, of course, is the foolishness of those that want Christians to be non-political. Those that want pastors to be neutral. Friends, there is no neutrality with knowledge, especially with the knowledge of God. 
You are either striving for a just society according to the law of God, or you are, even if you don't intend to, advocating for wickedness to win out at the end of the day. And I'll tell you, I don't think that's God's vision for the future. My mommy told me when I was young that I'm a winner. And so I don't want to lose anything. But here's the beauty of God's righteousness. He sets up a system by which he is in control. He is the authority. Therefore, we do not lose. We must be vocal in society, not just in our own souls, about passages like this that attest to his righteousness. God has a law. And it is supreme over all other options. There is no secular option for society with God. Because number three, quickly, sin must be dealt with in soul and society. So many of you are comfortable with that first term because of your personal Lord and Savior. You want to deal with it in soul, but here's the key. You cannot heal souls until you begin to have a vision for the society that will be set up once you do that. Discipleship has ramifications for culture. If we truly believe that we can reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I'll tell you what else we believe. We believe that as more people get saved, then society will get more righteous. And God has given us a system by which that can happen. Verse 6 is a reiteration of Numbers 35. It talks about how do you deal with the manslayer once he's been freed from the avenger of blood. It reinforces the principle of justice. The intention of your heart matters. You reach this conclusion because God has written it on the heart of man to realize that motivation matters in all things. And he's given us in his word in special ways. As does proportionate punishment for crimes. The reality that we deal with in these issues is that we can only trust God with justice. Everything else is subjective in the hands of human beings. The laws of society cannot be based on autonomous wills from individuals or even populations because that is the source of so much injustice in our society. That is why the concepts of God's law are used to describe how the church should see gover governmental authority in Romans chapter 13. Quickly, verse 4 of Romans 13, speaking of those that seek to bring crime to justice, says that the magistrate is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He's the servant of God. But here's a term, again, from Deuteronomy and Joshua, an avenger. It's the same word. He's not talking about Iron Man. He's talking about the avenger of blood who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is a term that can be applied to the enforcement and judgment based on law. But here's the question. How do you then define the good? What standard do you use? The popular societal standard? Well, we're seeing how that's going all wrong. The personal standard? We well, see the chaos that could ensue from that. Do we vote on that? How's that working out? Good must be objectively rooted in God. Because as we saw at the beginning in Deuteronomy 13, only God is truly good. The good magistrate then, yes, he bears the sword. And the sword is to serve God's good. Therefore, the church of Jesus Christ must always advocate for the goodness of God's moral law in soul and society. Here's how great apologist and theologian Greg Bonson once put it. 
that when the sword is wielded based on laws disconnected from God, it is certainly wielded in vain and represents the brute force of some men's will against the will of other men. Justice, then, indeed becomes a verbal cloak for whatever serves the interests of the strong men in society. You see, friends, we ultimately know that that is not real justice because it's not defined by a righteous God. Because only the God of the cross can be trusted with justice. If you skip down from Romans 13.4 to Romans 13.10, I think it sums it up well for us. Paul writes and he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Again, how do you define wrong? Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. How do we know that societal good is done? When it is anchored to love that fulfills the law of God. But that, again, it demands that you define love. You see, where do you find that kind of love? Of course, you find it in Scripture. And you see its ultimate conclusion in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the God you can trust with justice. That is the righteous God. We fail and we sin against our neighbor, yet God found a way to be both just and the justifier, according to Romans chapter 3. You see, friends, Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross to bring full atonement for sin. Going back to Numbers 35, 25, and Joshua 26. You see, some point to this and they see a foreshadowing of Jesus's atoning for sin on the cross. It says that the manslayer waited for the death of the current high priest before he could leave the city of refuge. And there was no revenge that could lawfully be taken by the avenger of blood to kill the manslayer at that point would make him a murderer. You see, the death of the high priest, many say, foreshadows the death of the greater high priest. And his sacrificial, special death pays the price for eternal redemption, thus atoning for the manslayer. But see, when you apply that, you have to understand that grace is never elevated by ignoring or accepting sin and its consequence. Do not miss the societal implications of God's law. The grace of God in Jesus is no excuse for sin because it brings redemption from sin. So those who are redeemed look at the law that could easily condemn us but finds fulfillment in Jesus and then you seek to apply that righteousness with equity to contemporary society and say, how can we as Christians influence and build society with God's righteousness? You see, friends, you cannot answer that apart from God's law. And you cannot understand God's law without the love of Jesus Christ. So you need to trust Jesus and live for righteousness. A few application points this morning. First, define justice according to God's word. It's the only place you can truly define what is just. Secondly, measure sin according to God's standards. There is no other just measure other than God's standards. Thirdly, define morality by God's law and don't negotiate. The problem with many is that you seek to negotiate just how sinful something is and can we just equate it all and we don't want to be too judgmental. Friends, just apply God's law, proclaim God's law, live for the righteousness of God. Thirdly, influence society with God's righteous standard. And it has to be God's righteous standard. You want to know why? Because you don't have one. 
And if you want righteousness, you can only find it in one source, and that is God. And by His grace, He's revealed Himself to us through Jesus Christ. 